Well, since the Lord saved us, my wife and I have had the great privilege, obviously as many of you have, of being part of churches that teach the Bible and that strive to live out what the Bible teaches. And with that great privilege, of course, has come many rewards as we've sat under godly and, and gifted men who sought to faithfully exposit the word, as we've been convicted of sin, as we strive with the Spirit's help for holiness, as we've served and fellowship in communities of believers who are consistently and earnestly striving to live out God's word, as we've grown in grace, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So being a part of a healthy body of believers, a healthy Bible teaching church has been amazing. It's been an incredible experience and so edifying. But being part of a healthy and faithful Bible teaching church also has its costs, doesn't it? When you're out in the community, uh, when you're around your unsaved family members, uh, when you're around coworkers, when you're around friends who might be loosely affiliated uh, with other churches, or those friends who always seem to be in between churches, or those friends who are on that perpetual quest to find what they call the perfect church. Yeah, it's those folks who, when they hear the name of the church that you're a part of, or the name of the pastor of your church, or the type of Christian that you are, uh, they're quick to toss out a term which has been quite easy to throw around, but which so often is incorrectly defined. And the term I'm referring to is legalism. Oh, you're a part of that church that practices church discipline? That's legalism. Uh, you're part of that church that says only men can be pastors and elders? How legalistic. Uh, you're a part of that church that says that the primary sphere of influence of women is in their homes? Wow, that's legalistic. Uh, you're a part of the church that encourages people to attend church each Sunday, and not only that, you have a first hour and an evening service? Legalists. Uh, you're a part of that church that tells people they need to give to the church? Legalism. You're a part of that church that tells people they ought to prioritize involvement in their local church over kids' sports or NFL football on Sunday or other personal hobbies? Legalism. Uh, you're a part of a church that tells people they should regularly be involved and engaged in God's word, taking in the Bible? Legalism. You're a part of that church that says that people need to obey what the Bible teaches? That's legalistic. Now, of course, nothing I've mentioned so far is actually legalism. Uh, so, while there are many out there, not only in the culture, but in certain churches who like to tag conservative Bible-teaching churches as being legalistic, the reality is their accusations and their definitions are far off. Because a lot of what they brand as legalism is actually just plain old obedience. Obedience to Christ and obedience to Scripture. And, and what they're really getting at often is and they'll never say this or admit this, is that when they throw out accusations of legalism, what they're really saying is that the obedience to Christ that they see in you, it makes them very uncomfortable. And it stifles and it cramps the libertine form of so-called Christianity, the carnal Christianity, which they prefer for themselves and which they think suits them best. The Christianity they'd prefer to embrace is that Christianity that allows them to stroke their pet sin so that they, that they can be that Christian who routinely gets drunk or is habitually enslaved to various lustful passions or so that they can be that Christian who's a walking powder keg of pent-up anger. The Christianity they'd prefer to embrace is that Christianity that would allow them to embrace the wayward theological and political ideas of our day so that they can be a Black Lives Matter type of Christian or an LGBT affirming type of Christian or to be a woke Christian. 
The Christianity they'd prefer to embrace is a Christianity that allows them to be passive and disengaged. The Christmas and Easter type of Christian. The taking a walk in nature is my church kind of Christian. Or the all start attending church once they get rid of all those sinners kind of Christian. In other words, a lot of mud gets slung, even in broader Christian circles, at what certain individuals believe, wrongly, is legalism. And the mud gets slung because those who are slinging the mud want to live a more libertine lifestyle. After all, the Bible does teach us that the Son set us free, so we are free indeed. Free to let our hair down, free to let our guard down, free to live however we want. We took out the fire insurance policy. We made that profession of faith in Jesus. Our ticket has been punched to heaven, so we can now live like the devil. Which brings us this morning to the book of James. See, James knew something of this tension that I've just described. This tension that, that hovers over much of what passes these days as, as Christianity. Where there are some who are bent toward a truly legalistic, stifling, never satisfying form of faith. But there are others that are bent toward a, a libertine, do as you please, you do you and I'll do me sort of faith. James, you'll recall, was writing to this group of early Jewish converts, those who were culturally Jewish but had since come to faith in a Jewish Messiah, who, of course, was not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. And as we saw last Sunday, there were some in James's audience who apparently believed that they still needed to keep the law. Um, that is, the old Mosaic law, which had been laid down for the Israelites even after they came to faith in Christ. And to them, James said, like we saw this last Sunday, he essentially said, okay, give it your best shot. But be warned, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And at that point, if you become guilty of all, James 2.11 says you are now a transgressor of the law. And it was to that group that James had to explain that, that, that our law as Christians is not the Old Testament Mosaic law. Um, Our law as Christians is royal, coming from the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our law as Christians, James 2.12, is the law of liberty, which is revealed to us and set forth for us in the word of God, and which stems from our status as those who have been freed from the shackles of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. So there were some in James' day who who were bent in this more legalistic direction, but they didn't represent everybody in the crowd. Because there were also some in James's audience who had no problem embracing that word liberty. And as some do in our day, misinterpreting it and misconstruing it and misapplying it. There were some in James's day who had swung completely from one side on the pendulum scale to the other, from extreme legalistic, soul crushing Judaism to the opposite extreme of a, a totally antinomian Christianity. This group of of early Jewish converts had replaced the old works righteousness system with one that required no works at all. They believed that this new religion called the way, the religion of Jesus, what we now know as Christianity, gave everything but demanded nothing. They believed that because works are not necessary for one's salvation, that works were therefore not necessary for anything. Now, as we consider these two groups, the, the, the legalists and the libertines, I think it's important that we approach James's audience here as we engage with the text. We're going to be in James chapter 2 uh, with a healthy dose of humble empathy. 
See, with, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, albeit blurred and obscured by the logs that we have in our own eyes, we can get to these points in our studies of God's word where we can be harsh and dismissive of the folly of the forefathers of our faith. And as if we might not have ended, in, ended up in the same predicaments that they found themselves in. As though we may not have made many of this, the, the foolish decisions they made in their day. That's why when we read about Abraham and Sarah, we say, How foolish, Abraham, that you would call her your sister as opposed to your wife. What a, you're, you're, you're a coward. Uh, how foolish, Jonah, that you would flee to Tarshish. Or look at those foolish Galatians. Or can you believe Peter is speaking up again? I never would have been so foolish. I never would have been so ignorant. I never would have been so prideful. And if we're not careful, we run the same risk of doing the same thing here with James as we encounter the the Jewish Christian context that he is addressing. We can read these words with an, an, an unhealthy skepticism and puffed up pride, which is not the attitude God wants us to have as we approach this book. See, the word of God is not some lifeless specimen that we're called to dissect and pick apart and carve up in the way the liberal theologians and, and, and the critical theorists of our day do. No, the word of God is living and active and God-breathed, and it is supposed to dissect us and pick us apart and carve us up. That's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The point is, as we consider James's audience, and as we're going to take in our text for today, we need to do so with humility and, and with an eagerness to learn what God has revealed to us through this text. And what we're, what we're going to witness in our text today, which I'll read out for you momentarily, is this group of early Jewish converts who had lived under this old system of, of works and deeds and self-willed righteousness who had lived under a law they couldn't keep, who had previously believed that their salvation had something to do with something they did or didn't do, but then they heard the gospel. Then they heard about being set free in Christ. Then they heard about Christ having come to fulfill the law, that they no longer had to keep the law, and and that all they needed to do was believe that he had died for them and that their sin debt would then be forgiven and that their hope of eternal life would then be secured. And there were some, as we saw last week, for which all of this, the gospel, sounded too good to be true. So they ran back to the law in some way. And in doing so, sought to add something to Jesus' already completed and finished work on the cross. But there were others, as we're going to see today, who were all about that free and gracious gift of salvation and receiving that from God through Christ. They were eager to take that gift, eager to throw off the weights of the law, but in doing so, they overcorrected and threw out any notion of obedience to the Christ who had saved them. They threw off any notion of a changed life, a fruitful life, a life of works, a life of good deeds, which match up with their new identity in Christ Jesus. It's to that group, the Libertines, that James addresses the next part of his letter. And we're going to be, by the way, in James 2, starting in verse 14. Let's read God's word. What use is it, says James, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, the verses I've just read for you, are these are the verses we'll be covering today. They, they make up about one half of a, an entire paragraph of thought, which runs through the end of chapter 2 all the way to verse 26. We'll get the second half next week. But in this paragraph as a whole, from verses 14 through 26, James is developing and centering in on this concept of faith. That's really the entire theme or thesis of this section of James's letter, where he is teasing out what it means to have true faith, saving faith, active faith, and in contrast, what it means to have false faith, deceived faith, dead faith. James leaves no doubt as to what he is driving at in this section. His central point is that genuine biblical faith will always be accompanied by and will inevitably be characterized by works. We just read one of the verses, James 2.17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. James 2.20 is similar. Faith without works is useless. James 2.26 drives the nail in even deeper. Faith without works is dead. In other words, if one's faith is not characterized by works, then it's not true faith. It's false faith. It's fake faith. It's deceived faith. It's dead faith. Now, of course, it is true. That it is by grace through faith that we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Indeed, faith is at the very root of our Christian identity. But on the other hand, it is not enough simply to say, I have faith. It is not enough simply to say, I just believe. As so many Uh, unwitting Christian camp counselors and tent revivalists and ill-advised parents and Christian clothing lines and Chip and Joanna think it to be. No, true saving faith will always, not sometimes, always be marked by a transformed life, which is the fruit of a transformed heart. No one who has truly been given the gift of eternal life by the grace of God will take that gift and put it on the shelf like like a lame Christmas present that never sees the light of day after December 25th. Uh, No one who has been given a new heart and now has the spirit of God living in them will go on living life as usual just as they used to live before they were saved. No one, no, no formerly rebellious and hard-hearted criminal will go on to live a fruitless life devoid of any works or deeds or good fruit once they've received their pardon from the high court of heaven. No Christian, as the recipient of God's unfathomable grace and mercy and love, will sit on the sidelines, will be resigned to passivity, will be scared off by accusations of legalism, or will live out this kind of libertine, ignorant, devil-may-care kind of Christianity which masquerades as Christian in our day. 
No. As we've seen throughout this series, as we've worked our way verse by verse through what James has revealed to us thus far, true faith is an active faith. Uh, Genuine faith is not caused by works, meaning we, we don't bring about our salvation through our works or through our deeds, but genuine faith will always produce good works. And those works will serve as, as visible evidence, tangible evidence that we do, in fact, possess saving faith, that we are, in fact, Christians, that the hope of heaven is, in fact, secured for us. With that, we'll work through this text line upon line and verse upon verse, and here's how I've outlined the text for this morning. We have the probe, the picture, the prognosis, the pushback, and the problem. You got that? I'll go through them one by one. Here's heading number one, the probe, the probe. Verse 14. Uh, What use is it, James says, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, now James here is not floating out some new or or random ideas here. Rather, what, what he's writing here in its immediate context is a continuation of what he's already said earlier in chapter 2 about about personal favoritism and distinctions drawn between rich and poor and the demonstration of mercy to those who are most in need. But at the same time, there's no doubt that, that James here in the section of this letter that we'll be in today is making statements of broader, more, more general application to a variety of different settings and to a variety of different centuries, including ours. And as we're going to see, James begins by making these statements in verse 14. And they're not really statements, they're questions to probing questions, hence the the title here, to rhetorical questions, the answers to which are implied. For the first question, it's what what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Uh, The implied answer, the expected answer is that kind of faith is of no use at all. And then there's the second question. Can that faith, meaning a workless faith, a deedless faith, save him? And the implied answer is, most definitely not. Now there's much to be said here as we, as we work through James's implied and expected answers to these rhetorical questions. Uh, there's much to say about how James fits in here, what he's saying fits in here with the rest of Scripture. And, and we're going to narrow it down to three areas. How James fits in with James how James fits in with Jesus' teaching, and how James fits in with Paul. Now, starting with how James fits in with the rest of the book of James. Now, the reality is, even when James doesn't use the word works as he does here, the word is aragon, by the way, he refers throughout his letter to the idea, the concept of doing works. It's all throughout. In fact, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to go through sort of a jet tour of James as we pull out or mine these, these references to Christianity, true Christianity, being a works-producing faith. And as I read to these to you, I, I want you to note the tone. I want you to note the verbal action that's being stressed, even if the word works is not used. And I want you to pick up on the action that's implied. Some of these we've already studied. Some we'll study in the, uh, the weeks ahead. James one twenty two. But prove yourselves, doers of the word. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. James 1.26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James 2.12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. James 3, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James 4.17, therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James 5.16, last one. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. So back to James 2. 14, when he's asking these rhetorical questions here, what use is it if someone says he has faith but has no works and can that faith save him? These questions, my point is, are are not coming out of left field. They have a context. That context being what the rest of this letter has to say about saving faith being an active faith. Saving faith being a faith which produces works. These questions, in other words, are consistent with what we see elsewhere in the letter of James. Now, these two questions are also consistent with the words of our Savior, James's half-brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. James is in no way deviating from the teachings of our Lord. He's not going off the rails. He's not going rogue in what he's saying here. Instead, he is doubling down and affirming what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said during his earthly ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, the Lord said, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. James then is not refuting or or contradicting the words or the ministry of the Messiah. Quite the contrary, he's carrying those precepts, those principles forward as he tells this early Jewish audience that true faith, saving faith, will always be accompanied by and indeed will produce good works. Well, a person might say, well, okay, James may not be contradicting himself here, and James may not be contradicting Jesus, but my college professor says that James is definitely contradicting Paul. Because Paul said we are saved by grace through faith, and James is saying somehow we're saved through works, and those two ideas are clearly different. Well, James is not contradicting Paul here. Paul very clearly did say that it is by grace through faith that we have been saved. We already cited Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But you could also write down Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Here's Paul when he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 
And Paul also said very clearly that we are not justified through our works. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We're going to spend a lot more time on that subject next week, namely how Paul and, and, and James are approaching the same topic from different angles. And we'll especially need to drill down on James 2.24, where James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. The very verse that caused uh, Martin Luther to call James a right straw letter that doesn't believe in the canon of Scripture. We'll get there next week. We'll try to untie that not next week. But for now, it's sufficient to note that even though Paul is so clear that Christians are saved by grace through faith. And though Christians, it is not our works or our deeds which in any way contribute to our salvation, it's also abundantly clear from Paul's writings that he did not see salvation as some mere verbal affirmation or some statement of intellectual assent to the reality of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather, to Paul... Like James, our modern cultural conceptions of our conversion and our so-called salvation being linked to some one-time experience like walking an aisle or praying a prayer or throwing a pine cone into a fire at church camp or asking Jesus into our heart or writing for the umpteenth time on the inside of our Bible the date we got saved again, that would have been totally foreign to Paul and James. And because that's like, because Paul, like James, recognized that practice matches profession. Works follow words. Deeds follow the declaration. Consider just these words from, from Paul, and I could cite many more. And you all wrestle with whether you see a contradiction here between what Paul is saying about the importance of works post-conversion with what James is saying. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, impurity is what he's referring to there, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Or Titus 2. 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, there's no conflict at all between James and Paul. Or even consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where he says, test yourselves to see or examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Well, well what are we to test? Our profession? I'm a Christian now. No, you test your life. You test your actions. You test the pattern of your life overall. You test your works. You test the deeds to see if you really are of the faith. So to summarize, is Paul saying no works while James is saying yes works? No. 
is James saying that Christianity is rooted in works, while Paul is saying Christianity is rooted in faith? Again, no. Both are saying that faith, if it's real faith, if it's true faith, will produce good works. So back to James's first question here in verse 14, where he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? And by the way, that little insertion here, my brethren, right in the middle of his question, that indicates his, his tenderness and his compassion in dealing with this very important matter. He clearly is hoping that they're going to get this and show themselves to truly be of the faith. So what use is it? Answer, it's of no use at all. Workless faith, deedless faith is of no use at all. And his second question says, can that faith save him? Can that sort of faith, workless faith, deedless faith, fruitless faith, save him? Again, answer, no. If a person's so-called faith is not shown through, demonstrated by their works, all they have is a habitual, empty boast, a profession without performance. They're all talk and no walk. And such faith, James is saying, is worthless. Real faith will always produce real fruit. That's not legalism. And that's obedience. That's biblical truth. James continues on. After issuing his probing questions in verse 14, he now illustrates the point that he's made in verses 15 and 16. And our our second heading for this morning is the picture. So we have the probe in chapter 2, verse 14. We have the picture in verses 15 and 16. He's illustrating the point he's trying to make. Look at verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You'll recall that James used a similar literary device at the beginning of chapter 2. In James 2.1, he gives this direct propositional statement, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he goes on after verse 1 to to drive that point home through illustration of the rich man and the poor man entering into the assembly in verses 2 and 3. In today's passage, James is doing something similar. He's just made his point there in verse 14 through those questions that faith without works cannot save. Now in verses 15 and 16, he underscores his point with this illustration, which is to highlight the shallowness and ultimately the deadness of a workless faith. James's illustration begins there in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. Now, a few things already that are worth pointing out here. Notice that James mentions a brother or sister. And I just have to say to those who would say that Christianity is a, a sexist faith, a misogynistic faith, a faith that suppresses women, I want you to know and understand how counterculturally inclusive these words, a brother or a sister, would have been during James's time. You know, in the prevailing Greco-Roman culture of the day, women were regularly taken advantage of and severely marginalized and viewed very much in economic and proprietary terms. So when Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that there is neither Jew nor free nor slave nor nor free nor, nor male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when Peter says that wives along with their husbands are heirs of the grace of life, 
These are revolutionary ideas, revolutionary concepts. So it would be for James here as he illustrates his major point to put males and females on equal footing within the body of Christ. Now James goes on to describe this brother or sister as being without clothing. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that they had no clothing at all. We're not talking about a state of being totally naked. It could mean that in these days, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. The word could also describe people in less extreme cases, like people who didn't have the customary outer garment that people would wear, or people that were otherwise poorly clothed or ill-prepared. Like when I was shoveling snow in my driveway a month or so ago, and it was 13 below, and I didn't have gloves. I learned really quickly how under-clubbed and under-prepared I was for the process of shoveling snow, because I only lasted two, three minutes, and I couldn't feel anything anymore. That's the idea here. This brother, this sister, is without the clothes that they need. They're unable to stay warm because it's cold. They're exposed to the elements. What's clear here from the context of verse 15 is that their their lack of proper clothing is on account of their poor economic situation. And we know that from what is said in the remainder of the verse, that they are in need, it says, of daily food. That's not speaking so much of like daily rations, as it's saying they literally don't have food for the day. We're only used to living in contexts in which we ask questions like, what am I going to eat? And when am I going to eat? And where am I going to eat? This person here is portrayed as asking if I'm going to eat. They don't know if they're going to eat that day. So what James is describing here is this person who's ill-clothed, they're underfed, they're cold, and, and they're hungry, The situation is dire, and it's desperate, and they're in great need. You can picture the teeth chattering and the stomach growling. And what do they get? They get a cloak, right, to warm them up, a nice warm bowl of something to to fill their gnawing stomachs. No. They get the response in verse 16. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Again, we have to remember James, this letter to James would have been written in some sort of open congregational setting like this. They would have heard these words verbally, audibly for the first time. And as they heard this story, they would have been shocked. They would have found this whole situation entirely unbelievable and unconscionable. As they heard with their own ears this hard-to-believe account of empty piety and, and hollow religiosity at its worst. The fellow believer, this brother or sister, that's what that's referring to, has a need. They're cold and they're hungry and they're lacking. And the response from someone there in the body is, go in peace. Now, those words, go in peace, were actually a common form of farewell greeting in these days. In fact, we have recorded in Mark chapter 5, Jesus using those words after he heals the woman with the, the hemorrhage of blood. He says, go in peace to her as she goes on her way. But here in James, after being told to go in peace, the words that follow, the the cold and hungry person hears are, be warmed and be filled. Be warmed and be filled with what? Be warmed with what? They don't have any clothes. Be filled with what? They don't have any food. That's why they came to you, Christian. So what's going on here? I mean, it's possible that the person who is saying, be warmed and be filled, is misunderstanding or or misapplying the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, 
where he tells his followers not to be anxious about anything, even being anxious about what we eat or the kind of clothes that we'll wear because the Father will provide for each one of our needs. Of course, that's true. That's a theological truth about God's goodness and his provision. But Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 42, that we are to give of him who asks of you. So where's that heart here? Where's that spirit here? And in the earliest days of the church, we see that continue on, that that, that heart of caring for others in the body who are in need. Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, where we see the needs of the neediest widows in the church being taken care of in a very intentional and deliberate way. And we can't forget the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 17 through 18, where he drives this matter of our heart-level concern for other members of the body when he says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, the person that James describes here as being in need, they didn't need religious platitudes. They needed relief. They didn't need trite words and meaningless advice. They needed practical and palpable forms of help. They didn't need a sermon. They needed shelter. To James's point here, words without actions are useless. And faith without works is useless. I'd like us to all envision a scenario. You leave church here this morning... You pull onto 84th Street, you turn right or you turn left, it's immaterial to the the scenario, and you're immediately sideswiped, T-boned in a high-speed collision. And the impact of the collision is great. It causes your car to roll over, you roll a couple of times, and now you're sitting out here on 84th Street, upside down in your car, dazed and confused, the deployed airbag is in your face, You can feel the burn of potentially a couple of broken limbs. You see all around you broken glass and and shards of metal. And as you're coming out of your state of shock and you're starting to groan a little bit and you're wincing and, and you're writhing in pain, another member of our church pulls out of the parking lot onto that same part of 84th Street. They see you and you see them. You lock eyes. But rather than stopping, they just pass you by. But they're not cold and heartless. They... As they pass you by, even if it's five degrees outside, they roll down their window and they wave to you and say, blessings, greetings, be well, good luck, praying for you, as they zoom on down 84th Street on their way to lunch. What would you think of that person in that situation that's zooming on their way to lunch as you have that real need of yours? What would the watching world, what would all the passers-by think of that situation as they see the member of Indian Hills leave this church as their brother or sister is in great need, waving and screaming blessings and taken off? The answer is not very highly, which is why James says what he says here in verse 16, and we'll read it again here in full. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? 
There's that rhetorical question again. What use is that? He asks a rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 14. He says, what use is it? And now at the end of 16, he says, what use is that? And the answer is both implied and it's obvious. When we are unwilling to put the faith that we say we have into practice, when we are unwilling to translate our faith into action, when the best that we can muster in the face of someone who has a real need is be warmed and be filled, or blessings, or let's just be real, I'll pray for you. When in reality you have no intention of praying for the person you're saying you'll pray for, well, the faith that you have, the faith that you say you have, is ultimately of no use to the person in need. And ultimately, it may be of no use to you, ultimately, because what that may indicate is that what you have is not active faith, not living faith, not true faith, not even saving faith, but instead your empty words may betray the fact that you have an empty faith, or what James calls in verse 17, a dead faith. Look at verse 17, and here's our third heading for this morning. The prognosis. The prognosis. He says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. We won't spend too much time here on this text because it's just so clear. You know, in classic James fashion, straight to the point, faith, if it has no works, is dead. James here is not describing immature faith or weak faith or nominal faith or insincere faith. James is describing faith that's not faith at all. It's dead faith. My heart breaks when I think of the millions of deceived people all over this world who talk about being religious and and having some sort of relationship with Jesus or even being Christian, but they have absolutely nothing to show for it. They're basing their so-called relationship with God on something they did in the past as though there's nothing they need to do now in the present. And it's always so man-centered. I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. I gave my life to Christ. Okay, that's great. But what are you giving him today? Now that you call yourself his follower, how are you showing it? What do you weep over more? You know, the predictable plot lines of the latest romantic comedy that you binge-watched a couple weeks ago? Or the fact that there are hurting and grieving and dying people here in our body? What grabs your attention more? Fantasy football scores or the performance of your retirement portfolio or Instagram reels or Facebook stories or the details and the intricacies of God's word? What do you give more time and attention to? The the needs of others or to the needs of yourself? There are so many people who call themselves Christians, who, who say that they have faith, who take on the label, who wear the jersey, who appreciate the connotations of conservatism and living a good moral life that Christianity brings, but there is a total absence of works, of deeds, any fruit to support their claim. And that completely undermines and indeed destroys their profession. Faith by itself. Faith with no evidence of action. Faith without works is dead. You know, you can, you can dress up a corpse. You can put nice clothes on a corpse. You can strap that corpse into your car and get it here to church. 
You can, and I won't try to visually demonstrate this for you, you can try to cause a corpse to mouth the words to the songs that we sing here. You can cause a corpse to bow its head in prayer. You can even tape a corpse's eyes open so it looks like that corpse is being, paying attention to whatever's being set up here. But that corpse isn't coming to life simply by being in a physical church building. If it doesn't show any vital signs, if it doesn't have a heartbeat, if it doesn't have a perceptible pulse, if it has no pulse, if it has no heartbeat, if it has no vital signs, it's dead. So it is with a faith without works. On first glance, it may appear to be the real thing. But when you poke at it a little bit, like you poke at a corpse... I don't poke at corpses, just for the record. It shows no signs of life. It's dead. Well, what if you're that corpse here this morning? If you're that spiritually dead, unregenerate person who happened to make your way to church today, what do you do? You just start doing works, doing deeds, doing good things, becoming a better person, striving to become a better version of your old self? Absolutely not. That would be like spritzing uh, perfume or cologne on a corpse. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what the Mormon Church teaches. That's what countless works-based religions of the world teach, that somehow your works will merit your favor before an infinitely holy God. But that's not how that works. The holy God of scripture, the high king of heaven, will not accept your good deeds or your good works as a mean of gaining access to him or or currying his favor. Those deeds are called filthy rags in the Bible. Literally, if we want to get adult here, menstrual cloths. It doesn't matter if you're a a Muslim making a pilgrimage to Mecca or a Catholic praying the rosary or a good Samaritan helping a little old lady across the street. If your deeds are not the fruit of and the result of your having repented of your sin and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the solution for your sins and as the instrument by which you might secure eternal life, then those deeds that you're doing or those deeds that you think you can do are worthless and vain and futile. They are a stench in God's nostrils. Charity walks and canned food drives won't cut it with the holy God that you've sinned against. If I'm describing you this morning, your your greatest need is not simply to do better or to get better. Instead, if I'm describing you, it's important that you recognize that it's actually a miracle that you haven't done worse. And that you come to a humble and repentant faith in the world's one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But getting back to our text, which is addressed to Christians, what James says here in verse 17 is that a so-called faith that's not evidenced by works is worthless. It's vain. Uh, Merely claiming to have faith is not enough. Genuine faith is always evidenced by works. Fruit in our lives is evidence of the faith that's in our hearts. And if there's no fruit, then there's no faith. Like a body that's not breathing, faith without works is dead. It's not sick. It's not unhealthy. It's not in danger of dying. It's dead. Well, his case is not quite closed yet. James's, that is. 
Because in verse 18, we see him bring in a a hypothetical objector, a, a theoretical sparring partner who pushes back on the points that James has been making. And if you're taking notes, here's our fourth heading, the pushback. The pushback. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. James here is introducing an an ancient literary form of argument called the diatribe. And what he's doing is he's introducing this imaginary interlocutor or or objector with whom he's carrying on this imaginary conversation. And we're all just in the audience taking it in, witnessing, learning as as they dialogue. And this imaginary respondent, someone he's called here by James, is introduced in verse 18. And this someone, James says may well say. And then the quote here is given. Now, in your NASB translations and in the recently released Legacy Standard Bible translation, the quote from this anonymous respondent you'll see extends throughout the entirety of the rest of verse 18. I'm sure that's what you see if you have an NAS especially. You you have this one man quoted as saying in this long, run-on, almost schizophrenic sentence, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Other translations, like the ESV and the NKJV, start this quote in the same place. They'll start it with, you have faith, but they'll close the quote at, after, and I have works. So they'll say, you have faith and I have works, and then that's the respondent. And then James replies in a new set of quotes, which starts with, show me your faith without the works, and ends with, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, it's important to note that in James's day, in the Koine Greek language in which he wrote, there was no such thing as quotation marks. If you look at a Greek New Testament, you will see nothing resembling or, or, or mirroring what we think of as quotation marks. Quotation marks were invented and introduced later. So when we see quotation marks here in our English Bibles, we have to understand that these quotation marks were given to us by later translators of the original Greek text. Uh, in other words, while James's words were inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit, where quotation marks were placed later in later centuries is not inspired. Meaning that preachers like me who labor all week in the study obsessing with texts like these get to weigh in in situations like this as to where we think the quote ought to be. Well... As I've studied this text and read it over and over, both in isolation and against the backdrop of this section and and also the whole letter, I've come to the conclusion that the translators of the ESV and the NKJV actually got it right. I I, I think their placement of the quotation marks, so that you have really two conversations happening here, two sets of quotes in verse 18, more accurately encapsulates what's going on here. See, See, in true diatribe fashion, there's a verbal tennis match that's happening here. The respondent starts by asserting his brief objection here at the beginning of verse 18, where he says, you have faith and I have works. He's talking to James there. In other words, he's trying to separate this respondent faith from works. He's trying to say, okay, James, you have a belief-based faith. I have more of a works-based faith. Isn't it great how we're both in the family of God? I'm more of a works guy. You're more of a faith guy, but praise the Lord, we're on the same team. 
To which James says, as we start the new quote where it says, show me your faith, not so fast. And now he's sending his verbal volley over the net back to the respondent and saying to the respondent, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith, says James, by my works. In other words, while this respondent wants to separate faith from works, James here is showing him, consistent with the theme and the purpose of this entire section and this entire letter, that faith and works are inseparable. They always go together. So when James here says, show me your faith without the works, he's challenging the responder. He's saying, in effect, go ahead and try it. Give it your best shot. Demonstrate for me how you can separate faith and works. Exhibit for me how, as you say, I can have faith, but you can have works, and yet we're rowing in the same direction and worshiping the same God. Show me how that works. But as it turns out, as we've seen in this section of of James 2, and from the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul and elsewhere in James's letter, you can't. You can't separate faith from works. The two are inextricably intertwined, which is why James says at the end of verse 18, I will show you by my faith, excuse me, I will show you my faith by my works. Not separate from my works, but what? By my works. In other words, James here is saying it's impossible to divorce faith from works. Which is why you'll see my faith, James is saying, through my deeds. You'll know that my faith is the real thing because of how I live. You'll know that I'm a Christian, not because I say I'm one, but because I live like one. As I demonstrate good works and good deeds and as I bear good fruit. James is in no way discounting or demeaning the centrality or the importance of faith. But he is stressing and emphasizing here what true saving faith entails. Faith accompanied by works is genuine, it's true, it's alive. But faith without works is dead. Now, as we get ready to close our time here this morning, we'll come to verse 19, which is the final part of the argument for today. We'll have to take on the rest next week. And our fifth heading, our fifth point for this morning is the problem. The problem. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What we have here is James addressing sort of a last-ditch effort to justify a profession of faith which is not supported by any evidence of salvation and not supported by any evidence of work, which is otherwise a a deedless and dead faith. There's this attempt to prop up a profession of faith that rests on this statement of believing that God is one. Or put another way, a believing that there is one God. And this, of course, is a statement that borrows directly from Deuteronomy 6, 4, uh, the Shema from Old Testament Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But the same situation we'll see applied in our day. I mean, how often do we hear some version of this type of this statement today in our evangelism, in our conversations with folks. They'll they'll say things like, I believe in God. I believe there is a God. Uh, I believe in a higher power. I believe that we're not here alone. I I don't believe that we're all cosmic accidents. I haven't really figured out who God is, but I do believe there is a God. That's our modern-day equivalent of what these early Jewish Christians who James is addressing were doing. 
They were giving the correct Sunday school answer or, or Sabbath school answer. And on that score, James halfway compliments them. And I say halfway because he's really issuing a sarcastic dig at them. What the, the young ones call a burn. That's what he's doing. You know what I'm saying. He says, you do well. You believe, that the, 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 you believe in the monotheistic Jewish position that there is only one God. You believe in the unity of God. Wow. That's impressive. Well done. You believe in God. The point is there's sarcasm. It's dripping from James's pen here. And he's got a right to be a little salty here. And, and he has a right to disapprove because of the company that such a statement puts such a person in. Note, at the end of night, verse 19, he, he notes that even demons are capable of believing that there is one God. He says the demons also believe. Not only do they believe, they shudder. The demons' response to the truths they know about God, about his unity, about his triunity, about his holiness, about his justice and his wrath and his mercy and his love and his grace, it causes the demons to shudder, to tremble in fear. Because they know they serve a master, Satan, who has already been defeated by this very God, with that victory ultimately being won on Christ's cross at Calvary. And these demons know that just as his fate is sealed as an already defeated devil, so too is their fate sealed. And so they shudder. Now, for you to say that you believe in God, here's the point that James is is driving at here. Uh, The way that a lot of people around here will say things like, I believe in God, family, and country, or or God, guns, and Nebraska football. That's a great starting point. You're, You're on your way at least, but it's not enough. All that does is put you in the same category, James is saying, as demons. That, that legion of satanic, Satan-controlled creatures who do the devil's bidding as they work against the purposes of the very Lord that you claim to be aligned with. The reality is, there are so many deceived people in this world, and there are so many deceived people, sadly, in the church. And they accept, at some degree, the biblical diagnosis of the human condition as sinners. They understand the basics of Jesus' life and and death and his burial, his resurrection. They understand how that connects in some way to their sin and their separation from God. Uh, They go to church from time to time. They'll be willing to read and talk about spiritual things. They know the basics of Christian faith. They're they're nice folks. They're pleasant folks. They're seeming to live decent lives. And even so, and then when the conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they sound like believers, like they hold to orthodox evangelical theology. But then we investigate and we poke and we examine and they examine and they see there's nothing distinctively Christian about their behavior. They may be decent neighbors, and they may sit on charitable boards, and they may otherwise serve in the community, but there's no giving away of themselves, no counting the cost, no, no eagerness to say goodbye to the, the sinking ship of this world, no, nothing that challenges their comfortable and cushy and otherwise well-designed life. They say they're Christians, but they're not Christians. Not because you and I don't want them to be Christians or to believe that they're Christians, but because God's word clearly testifies to the reality that they are not Christians. 
See, it costs a person nothing to become a Christian. You simply need to confess, Romans 10, 9, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But it'll cost you everything to live as a Christian. True faith in Jesus Christ will produce a changed life. It will produce good works. It will produce good fruit. And it will showcase an active faith. We are free indeed. But it's a freedom that frees us up to serve the one who freed us and to obey him and to do good works in his name. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the time that you've blessed us with this morning. The time in which we've been able to breathe your air and enjoy your word and to have life and breath and movement which you provide to each and every one of us. We thank you for the truth and sufficiency of your word. We thank you for a text like today's, which is familiar to so many of us. But I pray that it wouldn't be so familiar that we would not be good students of the word and, and good evaluators of our own hearts and make sure that we are, as Second Corinthians thirteen five says, of the faith. I pray for anyone here who is doing that examination right now and as they measure their life and as they look at what they see is not fruit, but really failures and, and brokenness and, and nothing that, that showcases ever, ever having truly trusted in Jesus. That today would be the day that they would get real with you, that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ, acknowledging him as Savior and Lord, realize that it is nothing they could do or say or some way they could act or live that saves them, but rather what you have done through Christ on the cross already on their behalf. And I do pray that today would be the day of salvation for someone, for many in this room, as they come to Christ, as they bow the knee to him in repentance and faith, trusting him as Savior and as Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.